In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your faith in our modern world of today. And this week, we have our regular guest, Father John Flader, back here on the show. Welcome back, Father. Thank you, George. Good to be back with you. Right into the month of Mary, the month of Our Lady, and uh, there's, there's, there's many customs that happen around this time, such as the pilgrimage, uh, to visit a shrine of Our Lady, and there's many other great ideas uh, to take up as devotions to Our Lady, and this month specifically is devoted to Our Lady, so let's devote this episode this week in the start of the month of Our Lady here today. So uh, here's a simple question to put it to you. Why do we honour Our Lady? in the church why don't we just focus on jesus christ uh, as our protestant brethren say and uh, focus on jesus heaven the trinity why do we need to honor our lady is it a waste okay, well, let's address let, let's address the protestant um um objections and they're totally unfounded because they're bible christians and if they read the bible which they do and they know it very well and we should all be bible christians too they're going to find an angel appearing to Mary on behalf of God and saying, blessed are you among women. You are the most blessed of all women. God is saying that to Mary. Now, how can anyone who's a Christian read that and not honor Mary because she's blessed among women? And then Elizabeth, when Mary visits her, is going to say the same thing. Blessed are you among women. And then our Mary is going to give us the, the Magnificat and all generations will call me blessed. So that's a prophecy of something what happened in the future for good reason. And anyone with any devotion at all to Our Lady would realize she's the mother of Jesus. And if we love somebody like Jesus, how can we not love their mother? And if, for example, we have a friend and he's a good friend or she's a good friend and they really care a lot about us, but they don't pay any respect to our mother, we feel slighted and our mother is slighted. So the very fact that they love us should mean they're gonna love our mother. And when we look at it from our point of view, if we have friends, we care about their mother because their mother gave us them and their mother <laughs> brought them into the world. So um, it's obvious just from a human point of view and from a scriptural point of view. But then if we go further into the scriptures, we're gonna find at, at um, Calvary in John 19, 
that Jesus, just before he dies, is going to entrust Mary to John. He's going to say to his mother, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. And he didn't say to John, please look after my mother. She's going to be alone now because Joseph has died. I don't have any more brothers and sisters. Please, would you look after her? But he says, behold your mother. And the tradition has always understood that in John, all of us are included. But if we even take that concept of, of Mary as, as the mother of John and the mother of Christians, and we ask, when did that begin? When did Mary become our mother? Well, it was formalized from the cross, that's, that's to be sure. But she became our mother in a very real way when she conceived Jesus in her womb. So the very day of the Annunciation, when Mary said, let it be done unto me according to thy word, she conceived Jesus. And understanding, as the St. Paul does a lot, Jesus is the head of a body, of a mystical body. We, but the baptized, which includes Protestants, by the way, any validly baptized person is, is a member of Christ's mystical body. So in conceiving the head, she conceives the whole body. We are the body. She yeah. conceived us already at Calvary. There's another interesting aspect that some of the um, theologians, I guess, maybe saints, fathers of the church have pointed out. And that is that Mary gave birth to Christ in Bethlehem. She gave birth to his mystical body, the church. She gave birth to all of us in Bethlehem. But the tradition is she gave birth without pain. And that we can only know by a tradition. There's nothing in the Bible to say that. Although there's some references in Isaiah, I think it is, that, that kind of suggests that. We couldn't take it as any proof. But that was the tradition. She gave birth at Bethlehem without pain. But at Calvary, when the sword pierced our Lord's heart, when he was hanging dead on the cross, then the blood and water flowed out. And the, the fathers of the church saw, in fact, one father commenting on that sees both the two sacraments of the Eucharist in the blood and baptism in the water, but also the church flowing from our Lord's side. And the, the, the church, one might say, was born at Calvary when, when the sword pierced our Lord's heart. And if Mary gave birth without pain in Bethlehem, she was suffering unspeakably at Calvary. She's, her heart and Jesus were one. And one of the aspects here is, the, is what we call moral suffering. Physical suffering is experienced in the body. So we have pain. We have broken a leg. We have a sore. We have a, a, a whatever illness we might have can cause physical pain. So we're suffering pain in our body. Mary wasn't suffering physical pain at Calvary, even in fulfilling that prophecy of Simeon, the sword was to pierce her heart. But she suffered moral pain. And often a mother, for example, watching a suffering child with a high fever, maybe sweating, maybe in pain too, a child that has cancer. Children are dying of cancer with pain. A mother suffers perhaps more in that moral pain, watching her son 
let us say it's the son, suffering from the cancer. She wished she could change place. I would take your suffering, but she can't. That poor child is suffering and Our Lady has to suffer with him. That moral pain can be worse than physical pain. And Our Lady suffered that at Calvary, watching her son die. So um, she, the, she, she gave birth to the church, in a sense, together with Jesus, with pain. And that pain of Mary giving birth to the church, suffering with Jesus, is, makes her really bonded to us, her children. So we are, we are blessed to have Mary given to us formally by Christ on the cross, but always our mother. And she's the mother of all of us. So how can we not love her? Why can we not have May as the month of Mary with the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima on the 13th? and the Feast of Our Lady, help of Christians on the 24th, and then the Visitation on the 31st. So there's three Feasts of Our Lady just in this one month. It might be worth uh, touching on the five dogmas of Mary. I mean, the, the, the doctrinal certainties that we do have regarding Mary's role in the church are yeah. defined infallibly in the five dogmatic teachings on Mary, and now what are they, Father, for those listeners? First of, all, I, uh, first of all, there are four that are defined dogmas of faith. There's perhaps a fifth that you might have in mind, but let's come to that later. But that's what the dogma. Uh, yeah. yeah, so there's four. Uh, it's a correct yeah. one. It's a correct yeah. one. So, so the first one is Mary is, is mother of God, and this was defined in Ephesus in 431 against those who are saying in Jesus there are two persons, a divine person and a human person. And that was um, Nestorius. And the church defined, no, there's one person in two natures. Mary gave birth to that one divine person with human nature in Bethlehem. She is the mother of God. And so many fathers of the church comment on that. How can we not call her mother of God if she gave birth to God the Son? Now, understanding, of course, she, she is not the mother of God the Father or the Blessed Trinity. She didn't precede God. Nobody preceded God. God always was. In fact, God created Mary. But Mary gave birth in the flesh to Jesus, who is God. She is the mother of God. Then the second Marian dogma is, excuse me, <clears throat> She's ever virgin. And this is a tradition based on, first of all, the, the understanding that before the birth, which we get from the, the Bible, that Mary was a virgin. She had not yet come to live together with St. Joseph. She was, uh, they were still in that betrothal stage. Normally betrothal as lasted about a year. Then the, the husband would take his wife to his own home that would be the, the wedding ceremony, which was a bit less than the betrothal ceremony, I think, in its, in its solemnity. But they hadn't come together. Mary was a virgin, yet she conceived by the Holy Spirit. So virgin before the birth. Then let's go to virgin after the birth. It is certain from constant tradition that Mary and Joseph had no more children. Yes, the Bible talks about Jesus, excuse me, brothers and sisters, those are his relatives, his brethren, so to speak. So 
no children after the birth. And then it's only tradition that she gave birth to Jesus without rupturing her bodily integrity. So she was a virgin in the birth as well. There's a number of fathers of the church that say that, including St. Augustine. So a virgin before, during, and after the birth, always a virgin. Then we come to more modern times, and we have in, in 1854, the Declaration of the Immaculate Conception, and that, that Mary was always without original sin, was a belief in the early church, and they celebrated the, the feast of the the um, the birth of Mary, which in, in, for some of them was combined with she was ever she was uh, without any sin. Now, mind you, in the 13th century, some of the fathers, uh, the um, the the great uh, dogmatic scholars of that of that era, including Saint Thomas Aquinas, couldn't reconcile Mary's immaculate conception with the the fact of Saint. Paul writing in Romans 5 that that all have sinned in, in Adam all have sinned so Mary would have sinned too but then it was Don Scotus a Dominican in that in that same century who came up with the the answer that has been accepted which is that Mary was in a sense subject to original sin but she was spared it by the grace of our, our Lord's death later on. And he uses the analogy of somebody walking along, falling into a pit, and then somebody pulls the person out of the pit. And so we say that person was saved from the pit by being pulled out of it, having already fallen into it. But he says, suppose somebody is walking along, is about to fall into the pit, and then someone rescues that person, pulls them back, just before they fall, they too have been saved from the pit. So Mary, in a sense, would have been subject to original sin. She was saved from it by our Lord's death. So that's the Immaculate Conception. And here we have, too, the miraculous medal. Our Lady appeared to Catherine Labore in, I think it was 1831, so 20 years or more before the, the Declaration of the Dogma. And on the miraculous medal, it says, um, pray for us, virgin, conceived without sin. So the conceived without sin is already there on the miraculous medal revealed to St. Margaret, no, St. Catherine Labore, some 20 years before the Declaration of the Dogma. Dogmas are only defined, mind you, especially these last two, when there is a widespread belief of the church. And that was the case before 1854. So Immaculate Conception is the third Marian dogma. And then the fourth is 1950, and it's Pius XII defining the assumption of Mary into heaven. And I happen to have a really old prayer book that someone gave us, and it was printed in 1688 in London, and it's called A Manual of Prayers. And in it is a calendar of liturgical feasts. Wow. And on the 15th of August, one finds the, the, the feast of the Assumption of Mary. So, so we see is assumed body and soul into heaven. And that too goes back to the early church. There's a number of fathers of the church and I have their testimony in my files. And I sometimes read when I'm preaching on the feast. 
saying that the apostles gathered around Our Lady when she was dying, those who were still alive, of course, and then they, they saw her die, and they laid her out, so she had actually died, and then they saw her body rise, uncorrupt, uncorrupt, within, I don't know what period of time, an hour or hours, or maybe even the next day, but rising into heaven. So the assumption of Our Lady into heaven is a, a belief of the church now defined as a dogma too. Now, if you wanted the fifth Marian dogma, it has been proposed that the, the two aspects that Mary is co-redemptrix, she's co-redeemer with our Lord, and she is um, mediatrix of all graces. These haven't been defined as dogmas. They're common belief of the church. They don't need to be defined as dogmas, and maybe one day they will. But so for the time being, there's four Marian dogmas. That's a, that was an excellent summary, I think, of the, <laughs> of the four Marian dogmas. I think it gives a good uh, overlay of what uh, what our beliefs around Mary are. And does Mary stand in 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 an intercessory way, uh, higher up in the hierarchy of intercession? Is there? I've had that question um, asked to me many times. Is Mary a greater intercessor than every other saint in heaven? Well, what's our Absolutely. view? Of that? No, there, there's no question about that. She definitely is. And I've got a text in my files, and I was just looking at it a moment ago. Um, I can't remember who it was, but let's say one of the saints could have been um, um, Alphonsus Liguori. I think it might have been St. Alphonsus Liguori. And he is arguing that the interest, the the saints are intercessors by, without question. We pray to our favorite saint for various purposes. Each saint has a, a number of of um, particular intentions that people will pray to that saint for, and often those prayers are answered because those saints are close to God. But I think it's Alphonsus that argues that if the saints are intercessors and are powerful often. They are God's children, but Mary is God's mother. And if we pray through her, then God answers her prayers because as so many have said, she, Jesus never said no to his mother on earth. He won't say no to her in heaven. So she's a powerful intercessor. And if, if someone, like some Protestants, will challenge praying to Mary and they simply need to go to John chapter 2 and, of course, the wedding feast of Cana. And there Our Lady intercedes before our Lord to bring about the wine. All she says is they have no wine. Jesus rebuffs her. Woman, what does that mean to you? My time is not yet come. But he does it when Mary says to the stewards, do whatever he tells you. So Mary is a powerful intercessor. We see that in the scripture at, at Cana. So... She is powerful, and we can pray through her. We can pray to anybody. We can pray to the Holy Spirit. We can pray to St. Joseph. We can pray to the saints. But in a sense, we can think that all of those prayers end up going through Mary to Jesus, and then Jesus will answer them in the way that he thinks best. That is to say, we might not get what we are asking for. We will get what is best, because God is a father who always gives his children what is best.
I, I, oh, can't, help but, I can't help but say, observe that intercession is that it's quite a personal uh, thing that it involves a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, our Protestant brethren are always speaking about a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, if you have a personal relationship with somebody, your relationship with their family, and 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 surely a mother, if there is that personal link that our Lord has with his mother, speaking to his mother might get might have more sway than praying to some other saints. But there's no harm in praying to the saints and his mother to to <laughs> it's a really living relationship that we have with our Lord because he's a living person. That, that relationship he has with his mother and his uh, and the saints uh, is living. So surely his mother, just like how in a human context, uh, having a relationship with myself, you know, and my mother, and and trying to get through to me through my mother. So I mean, you can't help but observe this that per real personal relationship that you're entering into with our Lord by uh, having a devotion to his mother. That, that's yeah. Two, two, yeah, I totally agree. Two comments on that. One was experience I had when I was in Spain, and I was inviting a young fellow, a university student, to a retreat. So I went to his flat, and he wasn't in, and but his mother was there. And then I explained what the retreat was, and I sold the mother on the idea of her son going on a retreat, and he came. Now, he might have come anyway, but um, with the mother's uh, insistence, he, he definitely did appear. But the other comment is one that the Protestants will bring up, and that is from, I think it's 1 Timothy, um, St. Paul, where he Timothy says, there's Paul. only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ himself and man. There's only one mediator. We don't pray to Mary. We pray directly to Jesus, to which we say, Jesus can share his mediating role with his mother too, just as he shares his priestly role with the baptized who share in the priesthood of Christ. So you can you can hang on scripture, but in the end, um, there's always answers to it. <clears throat> and script and tradition, which we have as such a powerful source of revelation, comes back with answers that that satisfy us. And the Catholic Church has that fullness of tradition as well as the scriptures. I mean, you spoke about First Timothy 2 5. Uh, there's no there's only one mediator between yeah. God and man, and that's our Lord. But it's funny because it's quite ironic the Jehovah's Witnesses who don't accept the Trinity use this as an argument to say Jesus isn't God and he's mediating to God. So, I mean, <laughs> you're going to read it in a very literal way. <laughs> it's not going to make sense. Of course, our Lord is a mediator between God and man uh, because he has both <laughs> natures. So he's the link. Yeah. Now, Our Lady is mediating to Christ, <laughs> who is the mediator between God and man. I mean, just from a yeah. logical sense. Uh, so yeah. I think that's uh, well explained there. Uh, so let's, mm -hmm. let's go in now and speak a bit about uh, we we really I think established the role of Our Lady, the dogmatic uh, definitions about her, um, the dynamics of where Our Lady fits into the life of the Church. Um, let's now go into uh, during this month of Mary. Let's speak about a few uh, a few um, uh, instances where Our Lady has appeared after the close of um, Revelation um, during our time and uh, it, it, throughout history. Um, 
let's speak about them and their relevance during this month of May. We're going to focus in on that in this episode here. Mm -hmm. Now, when we speak about these apparitions, we're talking about history. We're not talking about legends, myths. We're talking about history, things that have been recorded, have been written about, and uh, have come down to us, and sometimes with material evidence. And let's go back to one which, which I love, which is Guadalupe. So in 1531, the Spanish are in Mexico, and obviously they want to get control of some land, but the Franciscans are there trying to convert the Aztecs. The Aztecs were into human sacrifices, by the way, and it wasn't going to be easy to convert them. They had their own traditions. And then one of the early converts was Juan Diego, who was just an, you know, one of the indigenous people from Mexico, but he was, he was a firm Catholic. And then in, I think it was the 9th of December of that year, 1531, he's just walking along near a hill, which today would be well inside the, the enormous Mexico City, but then outside the city proper, which was small, the Peic Hill, when he sees a beautiful woman that he recognized as Our Lady. And then she asked him to tell the bishop to have a, a temple or a shrine built on the site where people could, could honor her. So he goes to Bishop Thumaraga, and that's the typical Basque name. I spent some time in the Basque country at the University of Navarre and recognized that name straight away as a very Basque name. He was a Franciscan. And and he was naturally skeptical. If somebody comes to a bishop today and says, I saw Our Lady and she wants a temple built, the bishop would be very <laughs> naive if he just accepted that and built a temple. So he asked for some evidence. Please um, tell me more, but please show me that she really appeared. So three days later, the 12th of December, and his uncle is dying. And he wants to get a priest to attend to his uncle before he dies. So he's hurrying and he purposely bypasses to pay a kill where a lady had appeared to him so that she wouldn't interrupt his, his quick journey to his uncle. And then our lady, well, she's on behalf of God, knew where he was, where he was going. So she does stop him and then tells him not to worry that his, his uncle will be all right, which in fact, he was already cured. And, and then um, he asked for this sign that the bishop had asked for. She shows him to the top of the hill to pay it, which was obviously nearby. And it's, it's winter and the hill is barren and there's no way in the world flowers are going to be growing there. Sometimes we hear about roses, but when you look at the real, the historical um, documents, there's nothing about roses, they're just about flowers. So let's say there were flowers. So she show, shows him these beautiful flowers growing on the top of that barren hillside in the middle of winter. And then she helps him fold them into his tilma, which is a, a cloak made of cactus, cactus fiber, a very rough cloth like, like Hessian would be for us today. So then he takes these, these beautiful flowers to the bishop. And then when he arrives at the bishop's house, he unfolds his tilma, revealing the flowers but in so doing, this beautiful image of Our Lady appears on his tilma on the front of it. And that tilma, that cloth is there in the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe to this day in all of its vivid color. And 
with the, with the fabric itself of the tilma, which normally would dissolve, disintegrate within about 40 years, but over almost 500 years later, in uh, 2031, it will be um, what, seven centuries. Um, no, uh, five, five centuries, sorry. And, but the, the cloth is still there intact. Then over the years, there have been attempts to destroy it. A bomb exploded on the altar beneath it, someone anti-clerical in 1921. The, the, and I've seen a photograph of, the, of an wrought iron cross on the altar that was bent over, just, it's, it's doubled over, and you, you don't bend over wrought iron very quickly unless you heat it up to great heat. Whereas the image of Our Lady just above it was totally unharmed. There was an ammonia spill on the cloth at some stage, which damaged the cloth, but the image was restored. But then when they examined this image, both for its its um, symbolism, various aspects of it that appealed to the, to the Aztecs, but one of the features that was a more recent finding was they can expand the photo, the, uh, the, the photographic and then expand the photograph, I think it was 2,500 times. And that revealed in the partially closed eyes of Our Lady, when you look at the image of Guadalupe, the eyes aren't wide open. One of them is almost closed. The other one is, is partially closed, like half open. You expand those eyes photographically on this rough cloth and you see the image of what what Juan Diego was looking at, or what our, yeah, what Juan Diego was looking at with his tilma. And you see the bishop, you see some of his entourage, and you see a woman and some children. I think there's a total of 13 people recognizable as the bishop, as a woman or a man or as a child. And this is absolutely incredible. If, if you painted something like that on, on a very smooth gloss art paper, um, in that tiny little area, you couldn't paint it that small. There's no paint pigment in that image. They've, the scientists have investigated. It's no pigment whatsoever. It's not painted. And it's vividly there on that cloth to this day. Well, when this image was shown to the Aztecs, I think it was 8 million were converted to the Catholic faith in the next few years. And mind you, this is a time when Martin Luther in, in Germany is leading millions of Catholics away into Lutheranism and, and Protestantism in its various forms. So God was um, in his providence bringing people into the church in Mexico when they were leaving the church in Europe. So that's Guadalupe. And let me just give you, I've got, I just pull out of my files what Our Lady said to Juan Diego. And this is Our Lady as our mother. So in, in the first apparition on the 9th of December, she says to him, know and understand well, you the most humble of my sons, that I am the ever virgin, Holy Mary, mother of the true God for whom we live, of the creator of all things, Lord of heaven and the earth. I'll go on, but let's stop there because Our Lady gave the first two Marian dogmas which had been defined before 1531. The ever-Virgin Holy Mary and Mother of the True God. I wish that a temple be erected here soon 
so I may there exhibit and give all my love, compassion, help, and protection, because I am your merciful mother to you and to all the inhabitants on this land and all the rest who love me, invoke and confide in me to listen there to their lamentations and remedy all their miseries, afflictions, and sorrows. So Our Lady is revealing herself as mother to Juan Diego and to all the inhabitants of this land that she wants there to listen to their laments, remedy all their miseries, afflictions, and sorrows. So revealing herself as a mother to Juan Diego. Then this other text, I think it was on the 12th when he's hurrying to attend to his dying uncle. And she says, listen and let it penetrate your heart, my son. Do not be troubled or weighed down by grief. Do not fear any illness or vexation, anxiety or pain. Am I not here who am your mother? Are you not under my shadow and protection? Am I not your fountain of life? Are you not in the folds of my mantle, in the crossing of my arms? Is there anything else you need? But what a revelation of a mother to her son. We should all take that to heart. She can say those words to every one of us. Am I not here who am your mother? Are you not under my shadow and protection? Am I not your fountain of life? Are you not in the folds of my mantle? One image that I like, and when people are having trouble sleeping, and sometimes I guess we all have trouble sleeping, then one image is those paintings of Our Lady, and perhaps sculptures too, where Our Lady is holding the sleeping Jesus in her arms, and he is sound asleep. So often babies are in the arms of their mothers. They're secure there, and they can fall asleep. And if we're having trouble falling asleep, or we're wondering if Our Lady is there for us, just picture us as her infant child in her arms. She's holding us to her breast, holding us in her mantle, <coughs> and showing us she really loves us. So we can entrust ourselves to her. This is, excuse me, I'll just take a glass of water. <coughs> let's Let's speak about there's a few other devotions. I mean, it's just absolutely profound, just Guadalupe alone, her appearance there during the time of the <laughs> the Reformation and the upheaval um, in Germany, and they were spreading around Europe. I mean, it was quite a, if you really look at it, it's quite a remarkable time for her to be appearing in Guadalupe. But then Our Lady doesn't just stop there. She continues to appear in many other places. What's another example, Father, enlighten us? Well, I'm taking, I'll, I'll talk about three, if you like. Yeah. Um, which I put in my book, Dying to Live. And it's in a chapter called Back from the Dead. And people will say, in answer to us contending that there's life after death, oh, nobody's ever come back from the dead to tell us about it. And I say, yes, they have. And amongst them, apart from many, many apparitions of souls in purgatory, are the apparitions of Our Lady. But the ones that are most convincing are those where something happened which, apart from the apparition itself, was miraculous. And if we go to 
to Fatima. So in 1917, the First World War is drawing to a close one more year to go. And Our Lady appears to these three young children, ages 10, 9, and 7, in this tiny little village of um, well, Fatima, just outside of Fatima, Cova de Iria, in, in Portugal. And she appears beginning in May, and May 13th was the first apparition, and that's the feast now of Our Lady of Fatima. And then she appeared on the 13th of every month up to October. And But she made some prophecies that became a reality. And when somebody makes a prophecy which is quite striking, which is quite specific, and it comes true, then we have to say, where did those little children get that? But they must have got it from someone else. Our Lady must have appeared because they predicted something that was going to happen. So in, in I think it was the July apparition, Our Lady predicted, told them, that on the 13th of October, it's a very specific date, she would work a miracle that all would see. In, in the, every month after May, more and more people went to Cova da Iri on the 13th of the month when Our Lady was appearing. And progressively the numbers grew. By October, with his prediction of a great miracle that everyone would see, the, the number reported in the newspapers was 70,000. So it was a cold, rainy day in November. It, it's winter. And people were trudging through the rain and the mud to get to Cova da Iria. 70,000 people. <laughs> There's this tiny Azinera bush where a lady normally appeared standing on that bush. Obviously not in the flesh because she was standing on a bush. But she was appearing. And then um, the sun, the, the clouds parted. It was raining. The clouds parted. And then the sun was very visible. Then the sun began to whirl and to come down towards the earth. And the people were screaming in terror. They thought the world was coming to an end. And they were begging God to have mercy on them. They were getting down on their knees. And then eventually the, the, the sun went back into its normal orbit around the earth and the people were relieved. Meanwhile, their wet garments had become dried by the, by the heat of the sun. The skeptics had gone to Fatima too. And one of them was the editor of a paper, O Secolo, of, of, um, of Lisbon. And he went there just to report on the credulity of these, these Christians who would believe anything. He saw the miracle and he reported it too. So this credulity of Christians and then they had they realized and they wrote about it, so that that was uh, one of the predictions. But the other one, our number, made in July was, if if the people don't repent and stop sinning, then in the pontificate of Pius the Eleventh, there will be a great light, and a, and another war will follow. Mind you, the first world war is drawing to a close. A lot of people have been killed in that war. And then the prediction is threefold. In the pontificate of Pius XI, there will be a great light that many will see, and it will be followed by another war. So the first aspect is Pius XI. At the time of Fatima, the Pope was Benedict XV. He had been preceded by Pius X. The new Pope was elected later, 
he could have taken any name he chose, like Benedict XVI, but he chose Pius XI. Our Lady had predicted that in the pontificate of Pius XI, this miracle would take place. Then it would be preceded by a great light. And it was January of 1938. And the there was a great light like the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, which I saw growing up in Wisconsin very often in the summer, especially. And this, this shimmering light in the clouds due to some magnetic um, influence on the atmosphere. And, but this time it was seen very far south, as far as Portugal, even North Africa. And coincidentally, last month I was in Hobart and I went to visit a German couple and they were talking about seeing, they have a beautiful property outside of Hobart, well outside of Hobart, but well in the country, there's no light around it to obscure yeah. the vision at night of all the stars. And they said, here we can see the Southern lights. And I said, what do you mean? And then they said, well, it's like the Northern lights, except it's in the South. Exactly. The Aurora Australis. Yeah. Well, Tasmania is the place to go and witness the, the, the Southern lights. I mean, it's just spectacular. So you've seen the Northern and the Southern. <laughs> I, I lived in Hobart for uh, six years, but I never saw them myself. Anyway, this couple from Germany, and I was talking about the Northern Lights, and they said, well, we could never see them in Germany. You'd have to go up to Norway or Sweden, <laughs> the Scandinavian countries, to see the Northern Lights, not even in Germany. Well, on that night, they were seen as far south as, as well, Britain, and then Italy, and, and Portugal, and I think North Africa. They were reported the following day in the New York Times, and they, they talked about, let me just read it. I've got it in my book dying to live and when the new york times reports something as news it must be fairly significant and and what they reported excuse me well, i recommend you get a copy of father john flater's book uh, which you're opening at the moment dying to live so so dying to live reflections yeah. life after death it's 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 proving uh, sales are through the roof it's doing extremely well. So many people are picking it up. Uh, and uh, uh, many people are actually just handing it to other people as, as a way to evangelize and do apostolate in the workplace. And many people, it's, it's a great book that I think anybody can pick up of any faith and appreciate this. And it draws people at the end of the book. You beautifully draw people to the Catholic faith and to Jesus Christ at the end. If if mm. uh, if there is a God, if there is life after death, maybe Jesus Christ has something to say. I love how beautifully you do it, and uh, it's a tremendous book. And I know a few people personally who are about to give it to people in their workplace as as a way to evangelize and uh, and do apostle in the workplace. And I think it's terrific. So yeah, including one one Muslim lady who was given it by her her boss. Yeah. She read it quickly. Well, not quickly. She read it slowly, asking him many questions. Asked if she could go to mass with him at lunchtime, which she does on Fridays. Then she read my other book, Journey into Truth, on the instructions in the Catholic faith. She's finished that. She's reading Saint Therese of Lisieux, and um, so she looks like she's about to become a Catholic. That would be one little fruit if she does. But even she's really come to appreciate the Catholic faith through reading that book. But let's go back to what the New York Times reported on January 26th, 
1938. The aurora borealis, rarely seen in southern or western Europe, spread fear in parts of Portugal and lower Austria tonight, while thousands of Britons were brought running into the streets in wonderment. The ruddy glow led many to think half the city was ablaze. The lights were clearly seen in Italy, Spain, and even Gibraltar. Portuguese villagers rushed in fright from their homes, fearing the end of the world. So that northern lights were so significant that they were seen very far south, and the New York Times reported on it the next day. So that prediction of a, of a, of a bright light um, came true. But then the war did start, and it started, if you like, under Pius the Twelfth, in, in 1939 when Hitler invaded Poland, but you can go back to Pius XI in, when Hitler annexed Austria and then and made claims on the, on the Czech uh, Sudetenland. So that was in the pontificate of Pius XI in 1938. So predictions that came to tell us somebody appeared to those children to give them that information, which later would become a reality. And of course, two of the children would have died by 1938 or 39, Francisco and Jacinta. And let's say you talk about the Immaculate Conception. What year was that defined dogmatically? 1854. 1854. Yeah, Pius IX. Our Lady, does she not refer to herself when she appeared to the children at one stage as, I am the Immaculate Conception? Yes, that comes. No, no, Pius XII, when defining the the assumption, said the the ever virgin, immaculate mother of God, she, he calls her by those three titles of the previous Marian dogmas in defining that fourth dogma of the assumption. Excellent. Now let's talk about another apparition, which was some, yeah. uh, accompanied by a good number of miracles and seen by more people than any other apparition in history. This is Zaytun, a suburb of Cairo in 1968. And Zaytun translating as, uh, in Arabic, Zaytun means olives. It means what? It means olives, because I eat a lot of them. Olives, okay. Yeah, I enjoy <laughs> them. <laughs> so in the suburb of olives yes. of Cairo, um, now, this goes back as when I was researching this. In 1918, apparently, Our Lady appeared to a man who owned lots of blocks of land in that suburb and asked for a temple to be built where she could be honored and she could um, help people. The, the temple was built, and it was a beautiful Coptic Orthodox church, very beautiful, white. And you see the photographs of it in the, on the um, when you put in Zaytun into... Google, you come up with heaps of photographs of, of Our Lady appearing and of even some motion pictures, brief um, segments of that. So it's a beautiful Coptic Orthodox church with four domes in the corners and one huge dome in the middle. And then in, in 1968, on a given day, uh, and a Muslim mechanic was coming out of the mechanic shop just across the street from that Coptic Orthodox Cathedral, and he saw a woman dressed in white, it was getting dark, and like shining light, standing on top of the cathedral, and she, he feared she was going to jump. So 
he pointed her out to other people who were there. They saw her as well. They called the police to prevent her from jumping or maybe catch her if she did jump. And that was the beginning of intermittent apparitions of Our Lady in that form. So appearing on the top of a Coptic Orthodox church, always shimmering in light, her hands folded. She would seem to be gliding across the, the top of the of that of the church, sometimes standing on, on the, the central dome, sometimes gliding up towards the crucifix on top of the church. And she never said anything. She just appeared. But it was many, many times. On one occasion, there were up to 250,000 people who saw her on the one occasion by the time the apparition ceased in 1971. She had appeared to over, well, there were millions of people had seen her. There's no other apparition in history that has been seen by so many people. But it was accompanied by miracles. And this, this Muslim mechanic, on the following day after seeing Our Lady, was going in for an operation to amputate a finger which had gangrene. But he was cured overnight, and he didn't need the operation. There was another Muslim who was blind, and his sight was restored after he saw some vision of Our Lady. Then there were people that were cured of cancer, of lameness, and whatnot, but quite a few miracles of people seeing Our Lady in Zaytun, or maybe in, in, in Egypt, because the news had spread, and probably it was on television as well. I was chaplain of Warren College at the University of New South Wales at that time, and one of our residents was, was actually, actually Coptic Orthodox, or Coptic Catholic, I can't remember, but he was from Cairo, and he had seen Our Lady there. And if you put that into Google, Zaytun being spelled Z-E-I-T-O-U-N, you, you see many photographs and little videos of Our Lady appearing there. And then finally, the, the Egyptian government conducted an investigation into it, and they said there is no evidence for any other explanation than, than Mary appearing there before all these people, because President Nasser also saw her. <laughs> it's one of these extraordinary phenomena where, phenomena where Our Lady is, in fact, appearing in modern times. This is up to 1971. And then there's apparitions in Japan yeah. of Akita and, and others, and Medjugorje, if one wants to take that. So Our Lady is appearing warning the world, generally the messages are the same, pray, do penance, make up for your sins. Sacrifice, mass, place. and yeah. prayers. Yeah, it's it's the same thing over and over again. Our Lady appears and is there to help us. So, I mean, she, I think she's playing a tremendous role. I mean, it's not as if St. Peter has been appearing all these years or a particular saint has been reappearing. It's Our Lady uh, calling us back to repent, pray. It's a simple message. Now, Father, what is the simple three practical tools you have for us this week to take action this month in the month of Mary to, to really elevate our devotion to Our Lady permanently, mm. but through the channel of this month? What's mm. What are three practical tools we can do to take action now? Well, uh, you always uh, put this question. I hadn't thought of the answer before, but we're in the month of May. It's the month of Mary. What can we do? to honor Our Lady, one is pray the rosary. She urges Bernadette at Lourdes to pray the rosary. She appeared at Fatima with the rosary in her hand 
and she said it together with the children. So the rosary is that devotion that she personally is encouraging us to say. It's a it's a it's a Christological prayer, as Pope Pius, Pope Paul the Sixth, wrote in Martialis Cultus in the 1960s. It's a it's a Christological as well as a Marian prayer. In that, what are we meditating on in the mysteries of the Rosary? The life of Christ in his infancy, now with the luminous mysteries, his public life, his passion and death, and his resurrection and glorification. So we're meditating on Christ. We're mentioning him in every Hail Mary, um, blesses the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. So it's a Christological prayer, and it's a Marian prayer, of course, with the 50 Hail Marys. So the rosary. Let's say the rosary. Then other Marian devotions and prayers. The, the memorare is one that not everybody knows. Quite a few people do, and it's a beautiful prayer. And it, it comes from the Latin word, the first Latin word memorare, remember, that never was it known that anyone who fled to that protection was left unaided. So praying the memorare, the Hail Holy Queen, Hail our, our life, our mercy, and our hope, the Hail Mary, whatever Marian prayers anybody has been saying, pray them, pray to Our Lady. And then, and then make a pilgrimage. Mary May is amongst the pilgrimages, and many people go to pilgrimages. They can pray to a shrine of Our Lady in their local parish church, go outside the city to Mount Goa and other places. And um, so there are many beautiful places to pray in front of an image yeah. of Our Lady. So practical tool number one is pick up the rosary. And for those who have never prayed the rosary or struggle with the rosary, perhaps starting with one decade a day and building up on that slowly and gradually. And I think you have a great book on the rosary, Father. Is, it, is that correct? Yeah, my little book is Understanding the Rosary. It's a Catholic Truth Society publication now in London, but it's available in Sydney. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, understanding the history of the rosary. No, understanding the rosary. Understanding. And I also the have, I have a little leaflet called "Themes for Meditation on the Mysteries of the Rosary," and I developed it for myself because, being German American by background, my mind is pedestrian. It's not up in the clouds. It's down on earth. And if somebody says meditate on the Annunciation, I say, can you be more specific? There's a lot going on there. <laughs> so I came up with five different themes, really practical ones for meditation. That's a little leaflet that I can provide for people and through you, if they like, they can get it from you. Or, if you want to get a copy of that, you can email me at thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. That is thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. I'll put you in touch uh, to get those resources. Um, uh, practical tool number two, pick up other devotions like small oh. prayers such as the memorable. Yeah, number two would be, if you want, make a pilgrimage or do something extra as well. But then the third one is when you're praying for something, somebody's dying, somebody has died, somebody's getting married outside the church or getting married in the church, we want to help them. Somebody's very sick. There's a broken relationship in the family. And where do we go? The most powerful intercessor is Mary, because she's the very mother of our Lord, and he won't say no to her. So he'll give us what is best, but if we want to pray with power, pray to Our Lady, and a good way to pray to Our Lady for various intentions 
is the rosary, and we can offer up each mystery or each Hail Mary for a different intention. So yeah, practically, just go to Our Lady more. Pray the rosary, pray other Marian prayers, make a pilgrimage if you can, maybe often with a family or sometimes parishes, take a whole busload of pilgrimage of, of, of people to a pilgrimage. I think this is something which can really help a lot of people is your practical tool number two. Pick yourself up, um, find a nice shrine within Sydney or Melbourne, whatever city you're in, whether you're in Europe um, or America, uh, many listeners here from the United States and uh, Germany and uh, <laughs> uh, podcast, many people in Malaysia, uh, big shout out to them. Research a shrine that's within your city or if you're willing to get out of the city, could be an hour, could be so, depending how far you want to travel and make that commitment to go and visit a shrine of Our Lady, saying the rosary there. Uh, on your way, saying the rosary there and on your way back. I mean, it's a tr tremendous way to reignite your relationship with Our Lady this month to continue throughout your spiritual life. I think I think that's what I'll be taking up, uh, Father, and I think many of our listeners hopefully will take up, is that pilgrimage and invite somebody with you. <laughs> go as, uh, you can go as uh, for a couple of friends. It's exciting as well. It's good to bring people together. and uh, Yeah. Does it a lot of good? Hmm. It does so. Thank you very much, Father, for being with me here today, the Catholic Toolbox. I think there's a lot for us to understand, unpack, and take action with in growing in our devotion to Our Lady this month in May. If you can leave us with your blessing, hmm. Yes, indeed. For all your your listeners and viewers around the world, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and your families and remain forever. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. Don't forget you can download the podcast on any podcast platform. And don't forget to go to thecatholictoolboxshow.com. That is thecatholictoolboxshow.com. And a big announcement, the art of practical Catholicism. Number two, my second book of the art of practical Catholicism series will be launched on July 20th of this year. So pray for that and more to come regarding that. So until next week, God bless, take care, and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.